Our Bible reading for this morning comes from the Gospel according to John. And we're going to be reading not from the first verse in the first chapter, but from the 30th verse in the 20th chapter. And as we've done together so many Sundays, let's all stand together for the reading of God's Word. I'll begin in verse 30 and then all of us together on 31. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you might have life in his name. Let's pray. Father in heaven, with our Bibles open. We ask that you open our mind, open our heart, open our attitude, our attention. Be the teacher, and may we be the student. This is your word, and may we receive it as such. We ask this in your name. Amen. Well, we begin a new series this morning, having finished our study of the book of Titus last week, and uh, we begin studying one of the Gospels. We've been singing about Jesus all morning. The Gospels is the part of the Bible where we are introduced to Jesus. And we're going to be working out of these verses we just read. The weeks to come, we'll get into chapter 1 and verse 1. But the title of the book itself is, is better said than the title of the message this morning, Introduction to John's Gospel. The more precise thing to say would be the gospel according to John, which is the way you'll see that likely in your Bibles. And that goes for all the other gospel writers. There are four of them. The gospel according to Matthew, according to Mark, according to Luke, and according to John. And the reason why I say it's important to put it that way is to remind us that we only have one gospel, but four different records of that one gospel from four different individual writers they're all writing about the same thing two of them were eyewitnesses Matthew and John Mark got his account from Peter and Luke compiled his account from multiple sources but they all talk about the very same Jesus and his same life here on the same earth so we make sure that we make that distinction however just like any major event that would have happened in history that would have been observed by many different people. You're going to have authors write about the same event. You're going to see differences in the way that that same event is accounted for as someone explains it. Uh, Just like you may see, say, a traffic incident. You've got four witnesses. There'll be four different stories about the same thing that happened from their different perspectives. The same is true in the Gospels as we read through them. Uh, And it's important to note those different perspectives because they give us a wider view of what happened. Would you rather hear about an event from one singular point of view or multiple points of view? Those multiple points of view are going to color that account in your mind more than just one or two. Uh, Same as uh, one of our Sunday school classes has already taught through these verses this morning just an hour ago. That will be, for those in that class, two different takes on the same passage of Scripture. That's great. It only makes it clearer. So when we look through these, um, Matthew 
is a lot different than John. Matthew was written to Jews. Matthew himself was a Jew. And any time you're talking about Jews whose national heritage was built around their law and their culture and their scriptures and their prophecies, if anyone's going to have a discussion on those things most important to them, they're only going to listen to one of their own. So it wouldn't matter that Mark or Luke wrote, it's Matthew's account that they're going to be listening to. And you're going to see it spoken about in terms of government and law. And you're going to see Jesus described as one having authority and not as the Jews. That's how he set out from among them all. So Matthew is writing to the religiously minded group of people. And we still have religiously minded people today. They'll get a lot from that record, though they need to read the others. Then there was Mark, who wrote to the Romans. The Romans didn't know anything about Hebrew law or custom or their scriptures or their prophecies, but they knew a lot about power because that war machine had conquered the entire known world at that point. So it shouldn't come as a surprise when we read through Matthew that his tone in there is very uh, fast-paced, that one account follows on the heels of another account. As if Jesus is taking care of his father's business, one piece after the other. But at the same time, you're able to see this suffering servant who's stripped of all dignity that he was very worthy of. Which to someone in that culture would understand. So Matthew is written to the business or the successful type with that in mind. Then there's Luke, who was a Greek, and he wrote to Greeks who lived in the culture of uh, of, of beauty and art and ideas, a very thinking group of people. He fills his account with insights and interviews and songs, fine details that fascinate the inquiring mind who wants to know and loves to think. Also, Christ, in, in, in his uh, being described in this gospel, the reader is in the presence of a man in ideal perfection that would scare or frighten the thinking person because that doesn't necessarily compute. But Luke is speaking to the intellectual. And then there's John that really doesn't fit the other three. They're called synoptic gospels. John is not. He's the one that stands out from among. You remember the game or actually the song from Sesame Street. One of these kids is doing his own thing. One of these kids is not the same. You had to choose which one. Well, it's John that's different from the other three. And John speaks to every man. There's no target audience with John. In John's record, the reader learns of Almighty God, but through the flesh of his Son that we've been singing about. John writes his story as if our only hope of knowing God is that his Son to describe him to us. The reader may feel as though he can actually get close to the human Jesus. John was closer to Jesus than any other person. He was described as the one that Christ loved. In the picture of the Last Supper, it's him leaning on Christ's shoulder. So if there's anyone who knew the sound of his voice, knew what it was to look in his eyes, or to feel the, 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 his hands, it was John. So it shouldn't come as a surprise to us that the most simplistic articulation of God's love for a lost world is through his son. And John writes with an intimacy that we do not see in any of the others. 
starts out differently. We have no Christmas story at the beginning. He just launches into these things he'd done and right into the miracles and teachings and so forth. But from uh, this gospel being different from the other three, far more poetic, but at the same time simplistic, uh, I would add that among uh, the books written in the New Testament, this is the most simplistic as far as its sentence structure, its use of words and vocabulary. And there's a reason why all the seminary students, when they get to seminary and begin their first Greek class, they start in John because it's the most... Uh, learner-friendly of it all. It's down on the bottom shelf where everyone can get it. And that might be one of the reasons why I like it so well, not because I have to read it in, in Greek, but if I do, it's easier that way. But don't you think that some of the best things in life are the simplistic things? Uh, the most simplistic songs that just seem to stick in your mind? The musical arrangement or poems that are easier to learn? or uh, even business strategies or taglines or recipes for that matter. They're easy to make. They have a few ingredients and there's just something that is, they're good because they're simple. Well, that could be said about John. And from this morning until, and the reason why I use the word until is because I don't know when we'll finish the series. We won't go from front to end all in one step. Uh, there will be breaks that we'll take. We'll likely stop around the end of the first chapter for Christmas. And we may stop to just study a smaller book b before we pick up again, like Philemon or Jude or, or Esther or Ruth or something like this. Uh, but we're going to stick with this until we finish, so long as uh, we have grace to do so. But one thing we need to do this morning before we get to verse 1 of chapter 1 is a preliminary step that I think is worth our time and trouble. It's actually worth a Sunday morning sermon. We're not going to get to verse 1. We're going to do something before we get to verse 1. And it's not unlike when you're at home and you're trying to fix something that, that needs to be fixed. Or you're, you're cooking and you have a recipe, but you've forgotten something. There's something left out. You don't have the right part in what you're fixing. It's worth your trip to get in the car... Go across town and get what you need to do it the right way. And then later, you'll reap the benefits from it. So before we get started, we want to make sure we've got all our tools in place. And you're going to love what I think is, should be our first step. I, I can almost anticipate the, the, the joy and enthusiasm you'll embrace this with. What we need to do is recognize the structure of John's literary work. See, I knew it. I knew that's why you came to church this morning. To study the literary structure of John's work, how he put his book together. And if we know how he put it together, then we'll know how to take it apart and then put it back together at the end. But if you don't like the way that sounds, the structure of John's literary work, think of it as a clue. We're, we're, we're looking for a clue to, to solve the mystery of how John put this together and then see what he saw. Or think of it as a key. We're going to unlock what's locked away from us if we don't have the key. Think of it like that and, and, and it's more uh, palatable, right? Well, the preliminary step to recognize the structure of John's work is to make sure we don't look at it as if it's just some kind of thrown together pile of loose leaf 
things that happened on specific days that John happened to see when he was with Jesus while Jesus was here on this earth. That it doesn't have any plan or pattern or point or purpose, but it's just a lot of little Bible stories like a lot of little stories we learn about as children in Sunday school. They're all good stories, but they're all arranged for a reason. And if we don't see the reason, we might look at them as just nice stories to talk about in church when we're together. They're not arranged that way. In fact, what we just read is the reason, the purpose for it all. But we need to make sure we understand it as John wrote it. So pay attention here. I'm going to give you, and this is a simple book, so it's simply put together with a simple outline. One of the most easy to outline books you'll find in the New Testament, but here it is. The actual body of the book, the biggest part of it all, begins in verse 1 of chapter 1 when John begins to argue his case. And it goes all the way to chapter 20 in verse 29, and that's where he stops arguing. So his argument, his treatise, the body of his work is verse 1, chapter 1, all the way to the 29th verse of the 20th chapter, and then he stops. And what we see in the next two verses amount to what some may call a footnote. An an, an editorial explanation of what he has done up until that point. And then you get to the 21st chapter, the last chapter, which is an epilogue. He doesn't introduce anything new there, but somewhat recaps what he's already done. So you've got a main body and an epilogue and then a footnote in between. The footnote is what we study today. We get excited about a footnote. Now the reason why you want to get excited about this type of a footnote is is for this reason. Everyone should agree that if you're doing a report on some book that's been written, you've got to understand what you're reading. They put together cliff notes for people who like to write papers on a book they've never read, right? You've got to get to what, what, what what it's on about and explain the whole thing in in a smaller version. Well, that's exactly what John has done here in verses 30 and 31 of chapter 20. He's footnoted the previous 20 chapters and 29 verses. So what we see here is going to give us the answers to those questions we're looking for. How did you put it together and why did you write it? Everyone must agree that when an author footnotes his or her own work, that that's the best shot we've got at understanding what's going on. Someone else may come by after someone's dead and puts editorial notes of explanation to help us with it. But this is John explaining his own work. So we're asking the author here these questions and getting the answers. So here's how we'll do this this morning, and we'll look at these two verses before we look at any of the others to make sure we understand the others by understanding these two. And we'll do it simply because John does his business simply. We've got two verses this morning, right? We'll have two points. One point for each verse, and here are our points. Number one, why did John write his gospel account? And when we answer this question, what we'll have is his purpose. His purpose in writing is the answer to the question, why did he write it? And then second, how did he go about writing his book? And when we answer that question, we'll have his method. How did you do it? Well, let me show you how. That's his method. So his purpose and his method answers the question, why and how? Now, I gave them to you backwards because 
systematically that makes more sense. But John gave them to us in verse 30 and 31. And since verse 30 comes before 31, we'll look at question how John went about writing his gospel first. And this will reveal his method. So look with me at verse 30. And we'll begin taking this apart. And if you don't have a Bible, you're looking from the Pew Bible. That's page 933. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you might believe. The first thing we notice is that John is making it very clear he has not told the entire story of Jesus Christ. As if that were possible to do. But he's right up front saying, I did not write about everything. Look at it again. There's a lot of other signs that Jesus did in the presence of his disciples, which are not written. We can find lots of things that Jesus did in the other gospel accounts that we do not find in John's account. He's being clear about this. I didn't write the whole story. But these are written so that you might believe. So there are some that he is writing about. There are some that he is not writing about. And if you were to go to verse 25 of the last chapter, last verse of the whole book, might be there on the same page or turn one page to the right. Look what he says there. Now there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. So he says that that's really not a a possibility. Uh, we write songs about this. There's the hymn, you may be familiar with it. Could we with ink the ocean fill? And were the skies of parchment made? Were every stalk on earth a quill? And every man ascribed by trade to write the love of God above would drain the ocean dry. Nor could the scroll contain the whole though stretched from sky to sky from the hymn, the love of God. John knows this. We know this. But he's making... For some reason, it clear to us that I didn't write it all. Not possible to write a complete record. But he did write about some. Those are not written, not everything, but some are written. So he's mentioning a whole category of things he hadn't written about, but then a group of things that he has written about. So the inquiring mind now asks another question. Okay, John. What made you decide between the stories you did write about and the stories you didn't write about? And there are more stories that you didn't write about than the stories you did write about. So if we can answer that question, we'll get closer to his reason for writing. The question or the answer to that is this, and this sounds technical, I admit, but just pay attention and I'll explain what I mean. The basis of his selection between what he wrote and what he didn't write is the significance of his accounts to his purpose for writing. He's got a plan in writing. So he's going to pick the stories that fit his plan rather than picking the stories that don't have anything to do with his plan. Does that make sense? Well, let's think of a way to illustrate this. Uh, let's just make up a story. Let's say that sometime... Uh, before we meet here again next week, when we get here, we drive into the parking lot, we realize that the steeple on top of this building is missing. And someone has stolen it. But let's just suppose that somebody in this room actually saw who stole it. 
So in the process of time, we would call the authorities and get a police report, and then there would be an investigation uh, to bring evidence to bear on how this happened and who did it. And you, as a witness, would be part of that, and at some point, you would need to give a statement and explain what you saw and how that goes with what happened. You wouldn't necessarily bring your baby pictures with you to that statement because that really doesn't have anything to do with it. Proving that you're born is proven by your standing there. Uh, you wouldn't necessarily bring, let's say, uh, your report cards. Probably doesn't matter. You might not even want to mention what you had for breakfast the day that it happened unless, of course, that is when you saw for the first time the person that you would later see stealing the steeple. That would fit. That would be useful information to the purpose of finding out who did it. So if his purpose is, as we read, to convince us that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and in believing that we might have life through his name, he's going to handpick the stories that he saw real events that really happened and stack those up as evidence to build his case to bring you to a crisis of belief. That's his purpose. That's what he's doing. So look at it again. Now did Jesus many other signs not written in this book but these are written. So the point is he's made a selection and to this method he's going to apply these in process to arriving at that method and point. Little too more to it than this. Um, let's read a little further. But these are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you might have life in his name. Now if you back up just a bit, you notice that there's one specific word that John uses to describe the things he's actually writing about. Now did Jesus many other signs. So he's gathering the signs to convince us of Christ's truth. That he is who he said he was. Interesting that he uses the word signs here. In fact, there are seven of them. If you're a good student, we go through this, we'll be able to name all seven of the signs that, God, that John includes. But let's look at the word sign. We want to wring every bit that we can out of these two verses to make sure we know what John's on about. And we'll, we'll put all this together in a neat package at the end. But he's arranging these signs. That's the word John used, among others that he could have used, to produce this crisis of belief that we believe that Jesus is who he saw Jesus to be, who Jesus said he was. There are three other words, or two others, including this one. Three words in the New Testament that describe what we would call supernatural phenomenon. Now, in our culture, we know about this type of thing. There's a huge money-making business in Hollywood known as uh, these movies that depict superheroes who have superpowers. They can do things the rest of people cannot do. And what we have to describe those are things like miracle uh, or the supernatural. In the Bible, there were three words. There were powers, wonders, and signs. Those are the three options that John could have used to explain these 
miracles that they're described as generically uh, that Jesus had done in writing his story to convince you that he was who he said he was. So of these three, why would he choose the one? Well, we might learn if we were combing through scripture that there are at least three places where all three of them are used at the same time. In Acts 2, where Peter is preaching, this is on the day of Pentecost. This is where 3,000 people get saved. Peter is arguing that Jesus was who he said he was, and everybody knows that he was different because of powers, wonders, and signs that he did in your eyes. You saw it. It wasn't done in a corner. We're not making these things up. So he's using these three to prove that Jesus was who he said he was, and you all know it. Now later, we get to uh, 2 Corinthians 12, 12, and these three words, powers, wonders, signs, are used as evidence of apostolic authority. And when the apostles went out and began to preach and teach to show the Gentile world uh, that Jesus saves, he gave them the authority to also do powers and wonders and signs. And all that did was point back to the authority that was given to them to preach and teach. I mean, think of it. You're a Gentile, and you've never known the Jews to ever be uh, generous with all their stuff. Hey, you can have salvation too. But then you've got some of these Jews that are doing that very thing, and they've got miracles. They're, 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 they're doing much as Jesus had done. Okay, well, I'll pay attention to them. It was a sign. And then there's a third... And that's in Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians 2, 9, where all three of these words, powers, wonders, signs, are used of the Antichrist, which is future. That hasn't happened yet. But lo and behold, the Antichrist will be performing powers, wonders, and signs. But there's a very useful word in the end of that sentence which says falsely. There will be false powers, false wonders, and false signs. And that should make you worry. Because the very things that Jesus uses to identify himself as true, the devil can use to lie to you at the same time. The other night I was at dad's house and went for a visit and the Ten Commandments were on TV. He'll watch through it every now and then and uh, try to nitpick the theological inconsistencies in the movie. But do you remember the point where Moses threw down the staff and turned into a snake? And then Pharaoh gets his wizards to come in, throw down their staffs, and they turn into a snake. Now, if someone switched the snakes while your back was turned, you probably couldn't tell the difference between the real snake and the fake snakes. Because the powers, wonders, and signs there look to your eyeballs to be the same. But then at the end of the story, what happens to the false snakes? They get eaten by the real snake. That's the way it's been since the Garden of Eden. There's truth and there's a lie. And what you've got to do is see the difference between the truth and the lie. And what John is doing in writing is making sure that you see the truth. And he's going to provide these signs and wonders and powers to convince you that nobody could do this except the Son of God. That's the truth. But he's being very careful in the way he does it. And he does not use powers and he does not use wonders. He only uses the word signs. Specifically, you don't see them in John at all. The other authors use them, but not John. He, he sticks just with sign because it's different than the other two. They all talk about the supernatural, but in a nuanced difference. So let me give you those, and then I'll tell you what he's, what he's doing. 
Powers refers to operations that produce results. So now we've left English class and we're in science class, right? We're talking about power and changing things. Power is the operation that produces results. Might even think of it in terms of force, capable of moving or changing something from one state to another. If that's complicated, just think of power tools. Say you've got to put in decking boards on your deck that's falling apart and you've got those four-inch sinkers. Probably be better to use an impact power drill than your fingernail, right? That'll work better. You'll be able to use the power of that drill to move those screws into the wood. Well, that's what a power is. When Jesus moves uh, water into wine, exerts power to change its molecular construction, that's power. When he walks on the water and doesn't sink, that's power. When he raises Lazarus from the dead, that's power. A power. That's how it's described in the Greek. Um, now, wonders are different because they more or less have to do with describing the way people react to a power. Rather than the effect, uh, refers rather to the effect of the power on the people who witness it. Wonders are often translated miracles. The miracles of Jesus, which is water and wine, and Lazarus just said, were powers that produced a wondrous effect on those that saw it. They were astonished. Now, a week before last, we were at the coast. Many of you knew that. The vacation on Oak Island. And we went after Hurricane Florence, but before Hurricane Matthew. And Matthew made land, not Matthew, Michael. Uh, Matthew was two years ago. Uh, Michael made landfall in Florida, but it came all this way, enough to dump enough rain in Virginia where I lived to raise uh, the river 35 feet above flood stage, worst it's ever been on record, uh, destroying life and property. But while we were at the beach, we decided to go down on the beach during the 35 mile an hour sustained winds. To watch what it did to the ocean. The power of the wind exerted on that ocean drove the waves in an amazing fashion. The next morning it was flat as a pancake. Just to see the difference. And I'm telling you the result is wonder. It's amazement to see what power can actually do. And the, the less familiar you are with the power, the more amazed you are with the effect. Right? Uh, some people don't really get a kick out of turning a light switch on. But electricians do. Because they know how it works. They're, they're, they're familiar with it. But then again, these things, watching someone walk on the water, that is a true miracle, right? You're wondering at that, astonished at that. But then there are signs which refer to the value of the power that produces the wonder. Let me explain what I mean by the value of the power that produces the wonder. It proves something. Now, sometimes we get a sign and a symbol mixed up. Somebody tell me what's on the state flag of South Carolina. Not the moon, but the, the, the palmetto, right? They call it the palmetto state. That's the symbol of South Carolina. But it's not the sign of South Carolina because you can find palmettos in different places than just South Carolina. Uh, 
Now, if you could find something that's only in South Carolina and you come across it, you could say, this is a sign that I am in South Carolina, right? Same with the bald eagle. It's the symbol of America, but it's not the sign because you can find them in Canada and Mexico. This is the sign of the wind on the waves there. Uh, it wasn't a sign, it was a symbol. Now, say there were 100 mile an hour winds. You might have the actual sign of a hurricane because that's no normal wind. Maybe a tornado could do that. But you see what I'm getting at? Certain miracles, powers and wonders are actually signs because they're proving that something is happening here that no one else could do except for creator God. And John is using that word to say all of these stories that I'm telling you are signs that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. They're all pointing to that. I handpicked every one of these. To make sure that this is what you believe. That the signs convince you. That you come to a crisis of belief. I've seen them and I, 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 can't, I, I can't believe any other. There was an illustration I used one time. I picked on someone who uh, truly believed that blood inside the body was blue. Until it actually came out and hit the oxygen. Then it turns red kind of looks blue under your veins, but that's not the case. It's, it's red all the time. Science proves it. But I had to show this person some uh, write-up about how you bleed in a vacuum. It's, it's red. You don't need oxygen to, to turn it red from blue in the beginning. And after the person saw that, well, then they had no choice but to believe that it's true. So John is writing them such that when people read and see their conclusion is he must be the Christ, the Son of the living God. We're not going to read it in John, but if you remember at the crucifixion where the clouds were darkened and the earth shook and uh, the, the rocks quaked and you got all this miraculous stuff going on. And maybe the most miraculous of it all was this Roman centurion you know, these little boys are raised at the arena, right? They watch people pull each other's arms and legs off. They would watch as the person is at the point of death. He's almost dead. The other guy's got his foot on his chest and the little boy is watching for the, the Caesar or his dignitaries to do this or this, right? And when Caesar does this, maybe the little boy does this. And they watch the man breathe his last. He's witnessing a crucifixion. He's seen so many of these. It's boring to him. What does he say at the end of this display of rocks and darkness and thunder and lightning? This is none other than the Son of God. He's convinced. He believes. That might be the most mighty miracle. Watching the person who's heretofore convinced that he's a fake and a phony and a fraud then believing in him. And that's exactly what John is doing here. So quickly, let's look at number two. Why John wrote his gospel. Let's plug in his purpose along with his method. Now Jesus did many other signs. So there were other signs that point to his being Jesus. In the presence of the disciples, they all saw it. Which are not written in this book. We won't read them here. But these are written, these signs, so that you may believe 
that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you might have life in his name. The signs were chosen to convince and convict your mind to the point of a crisis of belief. Believe what? Well, he's got that here too, and that's his purpose. That Jesus. You know that John uses the word Jesus more than anybody else over 200 times in this 20 chapters, almost twice as much as some of the other gospel writers. Jesus was his human name. Jesus was no different than, say, Jason in America. It was his, his, his given name as a person like anyone else. John uses that over and over again to make sure we're in touch with his humanity. But what he's trying to say here is the human being, Jesus, who was born of Mary, grew up in Nazareth, worked as a carpenter, had brothers and sisters, ate, slept, uh, worked just like you and me. The Jesus, the man, is what he's saying here, is the Christ. Now, Christ is his title. Christ is not his last name. Okay? It's not first name Jesus, last name Christ on, on a credit card. That's his title. Christ was the Messiah. Christ was the promised one that the Jews had been talking for for millennia almost. The, the promised one, the, the seed of David, the one who's going to get us out of this mess we're in and build Israel back to its former glory under the days of David and Solomon. He fits the prophecy. So the man Jesus is the Messiah that everybody's been looking for. He wants you to believe those two things, but even more than that, Jesus the man is also Christ the Messiah, but is also the Son of God. And that's the most drastic claim yet. To say that a human is the Son of God. Are you sure you said that right, John? That's the one thing that's going to secure his position on a cross. When he starts to teach in terms of being God's Son, that's when they start discussing terms of killing him as a blasphemer. Is it true or is it not true? Could he possibly be or is this just made up? Well, that's what this book is about. Jesus the Christ is the Son of God. And what you do says that you're to believe that. And there are people who do believe that. Demons believe that. But there's more to it than that. Look what the last phrase of the verse. And that by believing you might have life in his name. We'll get to that in just a moment. But to think of this as God... Son, And maybe in time we'll look at the place in Scripture where there's so many people that Jesus, that asked Jesus, are you the Messiah? As if that was the end of the game. And he asked them at one point a better question. This Messiah, whose son is he? And they paused at what he said because, okay, well, whose son is he? He's David's son. And then Jesus says, what about the psalm that says that David called the Messiah Lord? You don't call your son Lord because the father's greater than the son. And it says at the end of that story that they didn't ask him any more questions because they couldn't answer what he said. The truth is, he is David's Lord because he's not David's son. As far as lineage he is, but he's God's son. As we close, we'll look at this. Again, that, that, that one word 
used twice in the last verse. That you may believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and that believing you may have life in his name. The first believe, believing Jesus, the human, is Christ the Messiah, is the Son of God. That is really simply only an intellectual conviction. And what I mean by that is you've thought it over in your head, it makes sense. All right, I buy that. And just like you may have all types of intellectual convictions, you might be one of these that likes to watch the documentaries on Netflix about how bad food is for you. And you might be convinced that, that meat is just awful. And you shouldn't eat any meat anymore. And some people not only take that intellectual belief, okay, what they're saying makes sense scientifically, but then they actually stop eating meat. And their lives are now changed on the basis of the thing they are intellectually convinced of. But then there are other people. You might believe that fat and sugar are not necessarily good for your body, especially the two of those together. And over time, what they'll do is they'll make us heavy, they'll make us sick, they'll give us diseases. I mean, really, it's not that complicated of science. Most of us intellectually believe that fat and sugar in large quantities are bad for us. But you're going to prove this afternoon by the restaurant you go feed yourself... (laughs) Sugar and fat in large quantities, that that intellectual belief does not necessarily play out in your life. Does that make sense? Look at the second belief. He wants you to believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, but by believing, by putting yourself under those intellectual beliefs in submission to them such that your life is forever changed by the thing you're intellectually convinced of. This is where there are people that go to church who know all the things and this is where there are people who go to church that live all the things. By believing you may have life in his name. That's where salvation is. And we should be able to spot the difference between the fakers and the real ones. And those who have life, you can almost tell. This is God's child. He's been saved. The truth he knows is the truth he lives under. So all of these things we're going to learn through verse 1, 1 through twenty twenty nine, That this man named Jesus has come. And that if we believe that that man was the Christ, was the Son of God, that believing will give us the life he came here to give us. We will have life and we'll have it abundantly. Change your life forever. Now I know there's there's only the the hint of gospel in that presentation. But we've had gospel for several weeks past in the study of Titus. And if there's someone here today who's still wrestling with these things and wants to know more. I'm, I'm getting it and I'm understanding it but I need a few more pieces find me after the service this again is another gospel invitation find me after the service or David Brown or Seth Carter or Sunday school teacher or whatever this is life I'm convinced of it I believe what John says and I hope you will too and whether you've known Jesus all your life it seems or here just recently this book will serve as your introduction to Jesus according to the guy who was closest to him. He's going to explain to you what all these mean. 
He's going to show you the signs that point back to his Father in heaven that make this logical, believable, reasonable. It's not that you just have to believe Christianity because some guy in a suit at a church said you should. But because it makes sense. God loves you more than to say, believe this that doesn't make sense. He's going to say, this makes sense. And now I'll let you see what makes sense. So with that said, we'll transition into singing our closing hymn. And uh, I hope you'll, you'll be here as we move through this gospel. I hope you can see that I'm excited about it. And hopefully if I look excited about it, then maybe you'll be excited to listen about it. But with that said, let's sing. Let us pray. Our Father, Almighty God, gracious, loving, merciful, and kind, we come to your throne of grace in the name of Jesus, that one name above all other names. And Father, we ask you this morning for wisdom, for wisdom to know that there are many, many places in this world we may go. But the place of importance in your eyes is on our knees to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Father, guide us as we go throughout this week. We remember our mission of the week, Dallas Theological Seminary, and aid to the students there. Give us generous hearts as we support the many missions of this church. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for Jesus. In Jesus' name, amen.